This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Congressman Carlos Jimenez, who represents Florida's 28th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. They discuss his origins as a firefighter in South Florida, his pathway to public service in Congress, and how the U.S. House is approaching the most pressing national security and foreign affairs challenge facing Americans today. Congressman Carlos Jimenez, welcome to Reaganism. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's my pleasure being here. Well, you are from the representative from Florida's 28th Congressional District, uh, which encompasses Monroe County and parts of Miami-Dade County, former mayor there. In the Congress, uh, you serve on the Homeland Security Committee, the House Armed Services Committee, and the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party party quite busy there in washington and you began your career as a firefighter i'm going to start with that one and then move to uh your current job and we'll pass on the obvious joke of firefighting being the nexus between the two uh but tell me about life as a, a firefighter and and kind of how you came to that form of, of public service um when people ask me what um what i am at uh my base. I'm a firefighter. That's that's what I am. That's uh, you know my my life. Um, uh, from what the IF, IFF says, I am the first uh, career firefighter ever elected to Congress. Now, there's been a bunch that maybe have had a year or two uh, in in the fire department or have been a volunteer firefighter, but I'm the first one that's actually gone an entire career in the fire service and then went on to Congress. So I started as a firefighter when I was 20 years old. Back in 1975, and and then I retired in the year 2000. Um, I ended up being the fire chief of the city of Miami, uh, which led me to become the city manager of the city of Miami, which led me to become a commissioner for Miami-Dade County, which led me to become the mayor of Miami-Dade County, which le- le- you know has led me here. I still haven't figured out what I want to do in life, you know. So uh, you know, just keep going on and on, but. Uh, well, keep yeah. on searching. You're doing great things as you go. So it's obviously the right methodology. <laughs> well, you know, I took that, you know, there was a Nextel commercial, you know, way back, when, you know, firefighters ran the world. Well, I took that to heart, I guess, you know, <laughs> to run for uh, mayor and then, and then, and then Congress. And, you know, we have a way of doing it. Do we want clean, clean water? Yeah, we want clean water. Do you want a safe world? Yeah, we want a safe world. Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's not hard, you know? Yeah, of course we want that stuff. Okay. Everything I needed to know to, to lead in Washington, uh, I learned as a firefighter. Uh, as a firefighter in Florida, in Miami, um, you obviously engaged with elected officials, even even Ronald Reagan, I understand. Uh, and of course, you also uh, come from the Cuban-American community uh, in Miami, both uh, as a Cuban-American and uh, as a firefighter. What was what were you hearing from elected officials uh, during that stage in life that kind of either gave you insight of what not to do or what you should do, given the needs of, of your, your community? Uh, look, I... Most of my, my my mentors are actually from the fire service, and and the Miami Fire Department has a way of building and making leaders, creating leaders. Um, I'm a mayor, I'm a congressman, Miami Fire. There are a number of Miami firefighters that have ended up being chiefs at different departments. There are a number of Miami firefighters have been managers in different cities, which is not usual. Mm. There's something about that department and the culture of that department that kind of bred bred do it the right way, excellence. 
You're the best. We're the best. And the City of Miami Fire Department uh, was a class one fire department, and we were always striving to be the best and do things the right way. And so that kind of, you know, molded my uh, my early life, you know, as a young man. And I was, you know, I was 20 years old when I when I joined and all that. And so on the political side, you know, I got more involved. Uh, the higher the higher ranks I, I got, I got more involved with some of the, the uh, politicians. But I really didn't get involved until I was fire chief, which was in 1991. I was 37 years old. And the manager appointed me the fire chief of this, you know, this is a large metropolitan department of 750, 800 people. And at 37 years old, I'm like, hey, uh, what am I going to do now? I'm 37. I've already reached the pinnacle of my career. Um, and then, then yeah, I started dealing with some, some uh, politicians. Um, politicians are regular people. You know, some of them are very smart. Some are not so smart. Uh, some of them are trying to do the right thing, and some maybe not be trying to trying to you know do it do right by themselves. And so, the things that I learned as a firefighter, and the thing that I had on my, uh, there's a cup that I always had in front of my desk, which was uh, service above self. Um, and so, I took that you know to heart. Uh, I'm a public servant. I'm here to serve the people. I'm not here to serve my own interests. That's what, what I took. Okay, that's what I took out of it. Okay, and and so here in Congress and everywhere I've ever served, it's about serving and doing the right thing. But whatever position that I hold, to do the right thing, uh, the decisions I make aren't based on what's best for Carlos Jimenez. It's best for what I think is best for the community, for the country, whatever position, the department, you know, the city, depending on the position that I hold. Refreshing words to hear, ones that I hope are echoing through the corridor behind you there in the House office buildings. Um, well, there's no shortage of, of challenges uh, that you're facing, particularly in your roles on the various committees I mentioned earlier. One before you now is how the United States and how the Congress will choose to address one support for israel and a pending supplemental bill two support for ukraine and that same pending legislation and grouped together is uh policies that should address the border crisis and um you're, you're really in the heart of, of all of that and didn't mention also funding to deal and support uh with taiwan yeah. uh, what is uh, what is the kind of approach you're advocating right now? Uh, there's reports that people are thinking about breaking that one measure up and trying to deal with these issues individually. Um, give me your take, Congressman Jimenez, and and the prospects of any of this being addressed. Look, I think uh, all those all those uh, issues should be addressed. I think you know, I'm in favor of, of funding for Israel. Uh, that's our ally in the, in the Middle East. It's the only democratic country there in the Middle East that uh, upholds our principles and, and we should be the best of allies and we should help Israel in its struggle. You know, you got surrounded by a group of people that want to destroy it and kill the Jewish people. Uh, we have to help Israel. Look, being Cuban, um, I have no love for the Russian uh, army uh, or, or Putin. Uh, it uh, it was Russian help that uh, and assistance that has allowed you know the Cuban uh, regime to oppress my people in Cuba. So I'm not no fan of Russia, and I also am a fan. I am a fan of the Ukraine and Ukrainian people that are fighting you know this uh, superpower and keeping them at bay. Um, and uh, and we're not we're not there fighting with them. They're they're just saying, hey, give us the tools, give us the assistance, and. 
and let us fight, but we need the assistance. So I'm sympathetic to the Ukrainian people and their cause against, you know, the, the Russian aggr aggression on two fronts. Number one, it's a blatant form of aggression. Um, and Putin just thought he could go there, walk in and just take over Ukraine. But two, what you know, the the if he was successful at that, then what kind of message does it send to China? And then now we're back to Taiwan, right? And and that you know Taiwan now is susceptible to this. And if we don't continue to fund or help Ukrainians, and we and we stop it, then what does that say about the United States and its willingness to stand up with its allies? And I think it will cause irreparable harm to our reputation. I think our reputation is tarnished already you know, under the Biden administration. But if you stop and you cut and you run away from Ukraine, where all they're asking for is 5% of our defense budget, and they're not asking us to shed our blood, they're asking just to protect themselves, and we cut and run, I don't think that's a really good message that we're sending to the rest of the world. So I have a problem there. So now let's go on to the uh, to, to border. The border is a mess because Joe Biden made it a mess. The border is a mess because Joe Biden and his hired hand, which is uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, purposely have made the border a mess. I'm not sure even if we get with a, a, a an agreement with them, we pass some law, all comprehensive, that we give aid to Ukraine and to Israel, and that we uh, step up our aid to Taiwan so they can defend themselves against Chinese Communist Party that uh, Joe Biden will ever will ever uh, follow through on his pledge on the border. I think this is on purpose. The reasons are unclear to me, but uh, nobody can be that dumb. Uh, Mallorca certainly isn't that dumb. Biden even himself isn't that dumb. They've done this on purpose for a reason, and it'll, be, it'll all come to, to light why, why they're doing it. So I have no faith and um, that the president will actually follow through on any commitment he makes to secure the border. Um, so let's see what happens in the, in the Senate. But uh, you know, those are my thoughts uh, on those four subjects. Are they they're bundled together? Yes. Should they be bundled together? Probably not. You know, we're probably bundling them to see if we can get something on the border. But even if we do, what actually do we get from the border? Well, any way to fix the border? is a new president, a Republican president, uh, somebody that will follow the law, uh, somebody that will actually, you know, fulfill their, their oath to the office. And uh, and unfortunately, that's not what we have in the in the Oval Office. And unfortunately, that's not what we have as a Secretary of Homeland Security. Definitely pouring cold water. Any prospect that we can get a deal here uh, seems like the trust deficit is is grave in your mind. And yeah. uh, the expectation that President Biden, even if a law were to be passed and enacted, uh, your view is one that the issue will not be addressed by President Biden. Of course, President Trump has said that no deal should go through uh, before the election, which seems to me to reinforce that that issue is going to have to be sidelined uh, if you want to deal with some of the other issues you've raised uh, we, we discuss israel for example supporting their fight against hamas uh and ukraine supporting their uh fight against russian aggression what is your take you're obviously uh someone who's ear to the ground realistic knows what it takes to get things done could you see the funding for israel and the funding for ukraine go through without uh, a, a border Bill as a companion? I think the only way that happens is um, um, uh, I don't think it goes through with, with uh, a majority Republic. I think 
there will be a number of Republicans that will, but we're going to need the, the Democrat support. Uh, that kind of a, of a situation needs uh, uh, bipartisanship. That's not going to be one one side or the other. Both sides are going to have to come together. The people are kind of like in the middle to get that done in that fashion. Um, so I think that the only way that that can happen is through a suspension, and then you're going to need two-thirds. Um, there are a number of, of uh, colleagues of mine that uh, they, are, they, they, they have to have the the uh, the border. Look, I, I want the border too. I'm just a little bit more realistic that that uh, no matter what you pass, and then you say, hey, look, we got it, we got it done. It's not going to change anything. They're not going to uh, things in the situation. The situation board is not going to get improved. This this president has proven time and time again he doesn't care what the law is. And so you know, whoever thinks that somehow we have this deal and they're going to come through, I just don't see it happening. You know, and so I'm a little bit more pessimistic than some of my colleagues are. And then we need to start telling the people the truth that uh, Congress only has a certain amount of power and that, uh, yeah, we write the laws and all that. But, but you know, the Supreme Court is saying, well, if the administration doesn't doesn't follow the law, et cetera, your recourse is to impeach people, which I, by the way, I'm a, I disagree with that with that assessment. I think the Supreme Court was actually set up by our founding fathers to be the arbiter between the administration and the legislative branch, not that somehow, well, yeah, that's it. Well, you know, they're not following law. Okay, you guys, you know, over there in Congress, you got to deal with it. You know, I don't think that that's what the the, uh, the the founding fathers, you know, had in mind when they when they when they passed separation of powers. And that's of course referring to uh, compliance with the law as it relates to immigration and and to what extent the federal government is or is not, and the, the some. Uh, governors taking their own action as I think you're referencing with respect to the border and and what what action the federal government could or could not take you were referencing a moment ago uh congressman Jimenez about the opportunity to address the Israel funding and the Ukraine funding that you need some sort of parliamentary procedure, which is known as suspension of the rules, which uh, would require two-thirds uh, vote uh, of members and therefore uh, has a privileged ability to get the vote as opposed to uh, the sort of thing that uh, could be uh, hungered down with amendments and, and, and otherwise kind of the, the, the process. And so that's why it requires that level of vote. But of course, the, the nuance there, which is not a nuance for the speaker, is that, of course, to do that, the speaker would rely on democratic votes. We've seen that on a couple of occasions. We are currently not in a government shutdown, at least until March, because the Speaker of the House uh, recognized that to get that measure through, it required Republican and Democratic votes. And uh, even if it meant that there weren't a majority of Republicans in support of it. Do you think the Speaker and the Republican conference would tolerate Another vote, uh, a consequential one, as you've eloquently laid out with respect to Ukraine funding, Israel funding on a suspension of the rules and a vote that may end up having a majority of Republicans or even a slightly less majority of Republicans behind it. Uh, it's got to be a tough call for the Speaker of the House. Well, look, we're, we're divided in the Republican conference about funding for, for Ukraine, that's for sure. OK, and, uh, and any funding for Ukraine has to be tied to the border. Uh, I'm just being a little bit more realistic. And and somehow that uh, some of my colleagues are saying, oh, we've got to have this border thing. We have to have this border thing. At the end, okay, you get the border thing and you get funding for Ukraine. What's going to happen at the border? I'm really, I'm really pessimistic that anything else happens. So my, my, my messaging is the only way you want to secure, the only way, sure way to secure the border is to have a Republican president in 2025. Uh, and so, and if, and by the way, 
it kind of kind of hurts. You know, if somehow we can fix it here in Congress, you know, um, then do we really need a Republican president? Yeah, we need a Republican president. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, that's the only way that you can assure that the border will come under control if we have a Republican president. And and you know, all you got to do is look at what's happening right now. Look, the the laws haven't changed at all, at all. We haven't changed anything. We passed HR two. It's sitting over in the Senate. Yeah, that's that's a it's a great comprehensive bill. Uh, it uh, mandates certain things, but the law hasn't changed at all from January nineteenth. To January 21st of 2021, the law didn't change, right? The administration changed, and you had control of the border on January 19th, and then you had chaos on January 21st. There, was no, there wasn't any additional funding. There wasn't any less funding on 21st and the 19th. It is, all, it is all this administration and what they want to do. Um, and the administration has incredible power, and I think that Congress has given away way too much power to the administration to do too much leeway. And so Joe Biden thinks he has the leeway to do what he's doing under the current law, just like President Trump thought he had the leeway to do what, what uh, he, he did under the current law too. So, you know, I'm a little bit more pessimistic here. I'm more of a doer, like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a legislator, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a mayor, right? I mean, I'm an administrator and all. And, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't like just to talk and then, hey, that's it. The law's done, so the, the problem is solved. Well, we got a bunch of laws, and we have a bunch of problems. So something's not working here. You know, you actually got to get you got to get down and, and start working at it. Well, there's no doubt that when it comes to border enforcement, or right, that's really in the domain of the executive branch. And and as you point out, you have two wildly different interpretations of the law and what it requires. And as you see that, the different policy and policy outcomes with respect to the border between. President Trump and President Biden. One of the things that is within the domain of, of the Congress and it's Article One squarely is is raising support armies and of course uh, declaration of war and 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 providing uh, use of force to the president. Uh, that is. You know, president has the commander in chief authority, but of course, it's for the Congress to determine what is and is not lawful with respect to use of force. And of course, here I'm talking about the unbelievable increase in attacks on U.S. four deployed forces in Syria and Iraq, and most recently in Jordan. Uh, President of the United States could respond to his own commander-in-chief authority in terms of self-defense, but there is increasingly a need uh, that simply responding uh, in, the, in defense fashion seems to be inviting more attacks. We need to restore deterrence. Congressman, do you think the Congress needs to do more to demonstrate to the president of the United States and and, and to the world? And in this case, I'm, I'm really referring to Iran and uh, the, the IRGC, Iran, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, their backed militias and, and forces uh, that the United States is and will target anyone who attacks U.S. forward deployed forces. Where's the Congress in this conversation? I think, that, I think, well, I think the, the Republican side, our side, for sure, okay, um, is that we want, you know, more strict act. Look, um, President of the United States, President Biden has been at the wrong side uh, of history for the last 40 years. When he was a senator, when he was a, a, a vice president, now as president. I mean, what makes anybody think that somehow he becomes president and all of a sudden he's going to be on the right side? He's been on the wrong side, and so he's straight a weakness. He is an appeaser, uh, has been all his life, 
And so, because uh, he wants to negotiate. He wants to negotiate and he wants to negotiate with really bad people that want to destroy us. You don't negotiate with people like that. The only thing they understand is force. And so no, when, when he became president, you know, I, I told some of my colleagues, look, I think, frankly, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think that we're going to be involved in a major conflict or the world's going to be involved in a major conflict within two years, okay, of him becoming president because he's going to demonstrate weakness and our enemies are going to take advantage of that. And sure enough, that's what they did in Ukraine. Look what they said. But sure enough, that's what they're doing in Israel. And sure enough, now they're taking action against us. Uh, why? Well, because the president decided to lift a lot of the sanctions that the President Trump had put on Iran to try to strangle them economically. Now they got more money. Get, they have 500% more income from their oil than they did under the Trump administration. Um, the Biden administration uh, cuts deals for billions and billions of dollars in exchange for prisoners and stuff, allows $10 billion uh, to be uh, to be shipped from Iraq to Iran for energy, for God's sakes, and gives a waiver for that. And so all of that money is not used for the benefit of the Iranian people. It's used to destroy Israel and the United States. And so I don't get what the president doesn't get or Blinken, what he doesn't get. All right. And so, yeah, I want to see I want to see stronger response from the United States of America. Don't go bombing some, you know, depot in the middle of the desert where there's nobody there. OK, no. Start hitting some of their assets where it really hurts them. Uh, the assets, uh, you know, start imposing more sanctions on their oil, start reimposing stricter sanctions sanctions on them economically, and at the same time, you know, go ahead, go ahead and and um, you know, and then go ahead and, and strike those things that we know are are dear to uh, to Iran and its uh, and its allies. You know, those targets, you know, those, it's a target-rich environment. Uh, pick some and and let's go. We got to demonstrate to them that we're serious. And if you ramp it up, believe me, we're going to ramp it up even more. So either stop it, or you know this is going to get this is going to get worse. So you know need for escalation in terms of the U.S. side to respond in kind and ultimately to restore that deterrence. Clearly, you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, strike packages in places where it'll have a consequential impact on on Iran's calculus. These are uh, Iranian-backed uh, groups, IRGC-backed groups. Uh, do you anticipate that there'll be a push from Republicans uh, to get the House of Representatives to adopt some sort of resolution calling for some of this activity? Uh, the President of the United States, President Biden, has said that his time of choosing, he will, he will do so, uh, pick those targets. You don't seem convinced by it, both by uh, your response to that point and what you said earlier. Uh, and then, the, so we'll get your reaction to that. And more broadly, beyond the strikes, I think what your, some of your comments are getting at is that we haven't really seen a change in the Biden administration's policy towards Iran. Of course, as you noted, they started out seeking to restore the deal, the JCPOA, that of course the uh, Trump administration reversed it was restoring what the, the Obama administration had in place. Well, of course, that's not being pursued, mostly because Iran has chosen not to. It seems to be you're calling for we need to have a significant change in our Iran policy come from the executive branch and, and, and not much optimism from your part that, that we'll see that. Well, look, when I was uh, when I was younger um, and I got a management lesson and, and the management lesson said there's a thing called the hot stove rule. And the hot stove rule says that when somebody does something bad, all right, things happen right away. 
it's not they don't happen at my choosing because then there's no nexus between what was done incorrectly and the reaction and so when you stick your hand on a hot stove your reaction is right away right and so you stuck your hand in a hot stove and you got burned right it's not you stuck your hand in a hot stove and 10 years later you get burned all right you get burned right away and so this whole thing of his, of his time and choosing I just don't look. I don't believe anything that, that the, this president said. I watch what he does. You know, that's the difference between him and, and President Trump. I may not agree with or like everything that President Trump says, but I kind of like everything he does. All right. And to me, that's a lot more important. Uh, president Biden doesn't say some of the things, but, and people, oh, gee, he's, you know, he said this and I like what he said. I just don't like anything he does. Everything he does looks to me like it's contrary to American interests and our self-interest and protecting the American people. And obviously, unfortunately now, we have some, um, you know, uh, American, um, um, you know, soldiers that, that have, have lost their lives because of the inaction, because he's inviting this. Uh, you know, so I put this squarely on on, on President Biden. And, and now to say that, hey, we're gonna react in our, when, when we wanna react, let's see, you know, uh, let's see when and what he does, because remember, you know, when when they announced, hey, we we took these strikes and we and and we did this this and this to show them that you know we're you know we're serious and well, what 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 was it what was it that you that you hit oh uh, yeah we hope some depots some uh some you know action yeah. depots and stuff like that hey come on man you know well it's 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 certainly yeah. they are laughing at us all right and and rightly so you've got to be serious about this. Uh, and I just don't understand what he doesn't understand. Uh, this is per it's pretty simple stuff that he doesn't get. And it's almost as if he's working against American interests. And I hate to say that, but it's almost as if he's working. Well, certainly it's hard to argue against that. Deterrence has degraded under President Biden's watch for all the regions that you, you've cited and the examples you're pointing to. Um, nobody wants to see American lives lost, certainly a president of the United States commander in chief. But uh, obviously, if the policy is wrong and, and, and it's not being applied appropriately, that's that's the risk. And, and we're seeing that uh, play out right now. You know, one area and we'll, we'll talk about this before we move to our lightning round and conclude the conversation with Congressman Carlos Jimenez of Florida is Biden administration came in uh, really in a form of continuity saying that China was the, the pacing threat for the United States, just as President Trump did. And uh, when he was in office, you, of course, sit on, on the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, really unique a position to be in, uh, bipartisan in, uh, in terms of Republicans and Democrats, not just a name, every committee has Republicans and Democrats, but really there's a common purpose here, common understanding of the problem set. Take a minute to talk about this committee, what your experience has been on the committee and what we can expect from the select committee in the year ahead. Uh, it's a great committee, and, and it's a bipartisan committee. It was set up by uh, by former Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy um, and Hakeem Jeffries in a bipartisan fashion. We um, we everybody on the committee understands that China is the existential threat to the United States now and in the future. Understand what the Chinese Communist Party is all about, what they're doing, uh, and that they're not our friends, uh, and that 
you know, while we may have a disagreement on the need to decouple from them, I believe we need to decouple from China because every dollar that we send to China and the Communist Chinese Party is going to be used against us just like it is being used, you know, in Iran. Now, let's go back to what President Biden said. He said all the right things. Well, what's he doing? Remember, again, watch what he's doing, right? So what's he doing? Well, he's trying to destroy American energy uh, and replace it with energy that the Chinese are actually dominant in, which is solar panels, wind wind farms, et cetera. That's, that's something that the Chinese are, are building and, and making and manufacturing and sending around the world. Now, mind you, they're not using it because China opens up a new uh, coal-fired uh, electricity plant, one new one every single week. They are by far the world's the world's greatest polluter by a factor of two. And recently, you know, the, the Biden administration did something else. They they stopped uh, all the permits uh, for new, um, you know, natural gas. Uh, uh, LNG. Uh, LNG, uh, LNG, you yeah. know, facilities, you know. And so, you know, the, the best way, if he was really serious, the best way to actually reduce greenhouse gases in the world is by replacing Chinese coal-fired electrical plants with clean American natural gas, and you'd reduce the emissions by 50%, 50%. And, and so he's not serious. He, he's aiding the Chinese cause. He's aiding the Russians in their ability to generate income in order to perpetuate the war in Ukraine by destroying our energy. And so we continue to build up this, this uh, deficit. We can be energy, energy dominant. We can be supplying our allies in the world with clean American energy. And our president is destroying our industry. For what purpose? For what? Yeah. I don't understand. Unless, unless you're actively working against American energy. Remember, he says the right things. Doesn't do the right things. He said, no doubt, en energy policy is going to be a huge debate in the in the 2024 election. Um, the Biden administration is a. Congressman's referencing, of course, is now take uh, canceling or not allowing for new permits for LNG. The Biden administration would claim that uh, you know the U.S. is is kind of doubled its production, and so uh, some sort of government managing of the market. Um, but clearly the point you make, Congressman, is that this is something right now that's going to make it easier for China to continue uh, to carry out its policies, which, as you note, uh, they are they are the biggest polluters with their uh, coal production um, and uh, notably also treated like a uh, a emerging country, emerging market when it comes to uh, being graded as as a polluter. Um, what are some of the things that the select committee is going to be looking at? I guess we're we'll looking at energy. Anything else that you think uh, in terms of focusing on the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, of course, we have a, we have a new president elected in Taiwan. Uh, so the security situation in the Straits uh, requires you know close watch and and, and U.S. presence and and a focus for U.S. intelligence intelligence assets. Uh, no doubt the the select committee has been very focused on Taiwan. Well, we are, but uh, we also, you know, look, uh, what are we going to be focusing on, on on China trade policies and how we can combat, you know, the the, the China trade policy, how we combat their um, uh, the policies that they use uh, in order to monopolize whatever it is they're going after, and how they undercut uh, our our companies or undercut you know companies from around the world so they can become dominant in in, in a certain area. Uh, and so those policies that uh, how, do, how do we combat that 
how do we combat you know their influence with uh, with social media like TikTok, you know where an American uh, an American teenager when they search for for something they're they're given a you know this is what they get a Chinese a child or, or or teenager when he when he has the same search they're they're led to a completely different place and and so you know the, the how they're eating away at uh, at us using that platform and other platforms uh and so yeah what are they what are they doing in the south china sea what are they doing to taiwan what are they doing in the philippines uh all of those things uh those are things that we're looking at we have been looking at uh the race for artificial intelligence where are they uh where are we uh, their race for military dominance they want to be the the dominant military power by the year 2049. They want to be the dominant economic power by the year 2049. And, you know, they have some issues themselves. They have some things, some hurdles that are not easy for them to to uh, to clear. Um, but we can't be in a position to try to help China become the dominant economic and military power of the world, because I don't want my children or my grandchildren living in a world dominated by the Communist Chinese Party. Important mandate. There's a suite of issues that certainly all seem uh, vital for the attention of, of the select committee's oversight and, and your work. Let's go to our lightning round. Here's where we ask all our guests to share their favorite Reagan speech book and quote Congressman will take all three, two or just one. What do you have to share? Well, my favorite book is uh, An American Life, his own auto autobiography. Who, who better to tell the tale of Ronald Reagan than Ronald Reagan, right? Um, my favorite, uh, my favorite speech is obviously, you know, tear down this wall. You know that, where 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 his own people are saying, no, you can't say that, no, you can't say that, and he said, no, I'm going to say it, and he said it, and and that's the speech everybody remembered. You know, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and it led to the collapse of the of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire. Uh, favorite quote is, "Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction." Extinction. Uh, we didn't pass it to our children in, in the. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Um, and I'm afraid, I would hope that the next generation takes that to heart, and that freedom is not free. Freedom has to be fought for, and then finally, democ democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised my man. And uh, and so, look, um, he's the greatest president of, uh, of my lifetime. Uh, you know, man, he, he we could use a Ronald Reagan. And, uh, Congressman, uh, great quotes, uh, uh, like the, the closing, uh, given the challenges we face today at home, the focus on democracy and freedom. Uh, continue doing your good work. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.